0: If you have a Bible, would you please turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. It's page, if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, uh, I'm not sure if they got as far back as the blue seats, but it's page 1201 in those Bibles, and we're continuing our Elevated Jesus series in Hebrews. But as you look that up or or grab a copy of God's Word, let let me ask you a question, do you you know someone or do you know anyone who has drifted away from the Christian faith? Do you know anyone who has drifted away from church or do you know anyone who is currently drifting in their Christian lives? I reckon we probably all do. And before we we get into this and we read the text, and, and, and before I explain why I've started with this rather negative question, I want us to just pause for a moment, and I want to encourage you to just pray in the silence for the person that has come to mind, that you know who is drifting in their Christian life, or who has drifted, or maybe even to pray for yourself, just in the silence, take a moment have a have a look at that first verse in Hebrews chapter 2 it says this it's on the screen as well we must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away you see the potential to drift in the christian life is real It clearly was 2,000 years ago, which is why the writer of this epistle raises the issue with his original readers. But it does remain a real possibility for us today, as someone has written there, that is the Hebrews experienced 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way, that drifting is the besetting sin of our day. On Sunday mornings recently, we, uh, as we have tracked the story of Solomon in First Kings, we highlighted the fact that despite having started the Christian life or started out in faith really well, it seems that Solomon finished really badly. Um, and we discovered how he effectively drifted further and further away from God for a whole variety of reasons where at the end of his life, He was in a very different place from where he started. His heart, we read at the end, was not fully devoted to the Lord as his father, David's heart, had been. And he did not, at the end of his life, he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And we made the point That if that can happen to the wisest man who ever lived, then it can happen to anybody. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Those are familiar lyrics. We sing them quite often here. But sadly, they're also a familiar experience for far too many people. The potential to drift is real. It always has been. It always will be. And generally, it tends to happen gradually, slowly, subtly. By definition, to drift means a continuous, slow movement from one place to another. Now, of course, there are times whenever people do hit crisis moments and hit watersheds in their faith where they dramatically and very quickly turn their back on Jesus and turn their back on Christianity. But most of the time, a person walks away little by little. C.S. Lewis put it like this, speaking about the effectiveness of reason and argument, he said... And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? The answer is Probably. Albert Muller Jr. writing about this issue says there are only two options in the Christian life. We can either sail forward in fidelity or we can drift backwards in faithlessness. There is no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. Now, I think that's reasonably stark. I actually think it's a little too either or black and white. But the potential to drift backwards or sidewards or simply off course is real. And, and the writer of Hebrews is deeply concerned, it would seem, about this danger. And so he confronts it here in the second chapter of this epistle. And he not only confronts it, but he explains how to avoid it. But before we, uh, or before I attempt to unpack just the first four verses, that's all we're gonna look at tonight and, and listen to his advice I want to get us thinking and I want to get us involved. Here's the question. What is it that causes spiritual drift, okay? What, what actually brings it about? So what I'm going to ask you to do, I know some of you love this, some of you hate this, but anyway, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person beside you and just have a chat about this. See if you can think of one reason that you can identify or some reasons that you can identify why people drift away. Why? What causes spiritual drift? Have a chat to the person beside you for a moment there. And introduce yourself if you need to. <laughs> okay. Give me, give me some reasons. Some reasons for spiritual drift. Take my glasses off so I can see you. Some reasons for spiritual drift. What brings it about? Things that happen in the world, okay? So, for example, whenever people watch the news this week and whenever they see what has happened in Christ church, that can lead some people to go, surely, I can go and let that happen. Okay? All their reasons. the reasons. Well, Lack of the spiritual, that's a good answer, John. I like that answer. <laughs> See, and we've just come out of a series about it. Yep, lack of spiritual disciplines, yeah. <coughs> Temptation. N- Temptation, okay. So People feel let down so by God and then drift away from God, okay. Thank you. Sorry, someone else showed something. Busyness. Busyness, okay. Anything else? Pardon? Looking at, other Looking at other Christians, yeah. And I assume by that you mean being disappointed, let down, not just by God as Mary, but let down by other Christians, yeah? Lack of teaching. Lack of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, I'm not sure how to take that, uh, but no, I know it wasn't aimed at me, Tony. no. You need to have been out this morning as well to kind of get, um, understand that, but yeah. <laughs> I, that's exactly right, Tony. <laughs> yeah, but that l- lack of teaching, yeah. Wow. Wow. Sorry? You know yep. Like? So church can be irrelevant, it doesn't connect. Okay. Let me, uh, Kent Hughes in in his commentary on Hebrews identifies three three things. One of them has been raised, and all of those are reasons. But let me just, uh, let me pass on the the three tides he he raises that causes spiritual drift. Uh, And the first is the tide of years. Do you know, time can take its toll, can't it? back to Solomon. One of, the, one of the things we read about Solomon, as I say, he started so well. But in First Kings 11, it actually says that as he grew older, his heart turned or his heart was turned and he, and he drifted away. It would seem that the years impacted his devotion. And it still happens today because there are people who, when they were younger, were so committed, were so passionate, But over the years, just over time, the intensity has reduced. It's not that they have necessarily disowned Christ or totally abandoned the faith, but they're just not as keen, not as fully devoted as they once were. I I came across this striking prayer during the week by Robertson McQuilkin. some of you may have come across it before, but he he was concerned to finish well, and, and he wrote this. I feel the dark spectre may come too soon, or do I mean too late? That I should end before I finish, or finish but not well. That I should stain your honour, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few they tell me finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. It's, you know time. The years can cause spiritual drift. Second tide is familiarity. Do you know, it just all becomes so normal, so routine, so everyday. We're no longer gripped or captured by God's word. We're no longer amazed by the privilege of prayer or the beauty of Jesus. We're no longer lost in wonder, love and praise as we declare the greatness of God in song. Do you know that phrase or that proverb, what is it, familiarity breeds contempt? Well, that's probably too strong, but there is a danger that we become so used to it all that we begin to drift, we begin to lose focus, we begin to take it all for granted, we become complacent. It's one of my biggest fears, and I, know, I love the fact that we meet around this table every single week, but sometimes doing it all the time can become so familiar. Thirdly, then, raised, busyness. Too many other things demand our time and attention. The sheer multiplicity of cares and duties threaten to overwhelm us. We live our lives at breakneck speed, and so time for God and time with God, that's the thing that gets squeezed. And before we know it we're drifting further and further away now each of these can be a problem but the combination of those years familiarity and busyness can be devastating but it's not an exhaustive list and you've come up with a number of others and all all incredibly relevant but back to hebrews because let's discover what the writer recommends his readers do to avoid this danger so Please, if you don't mind, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. This is Hebrews 2, verses 1, just to 4. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how... Shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Grab a seat again. If you were here this morning... Uh, we are back in part to the same overall theme and idea, which is the importance, the power, and the priority of God's Word. According to the writer of, of Hebrews, it would seem that a key and critical way that you avoid the danger of spiritual drift is pretty clear. Beginning of verse one, we must pay careful attention or we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. So important to pay attention to what we have heard. The importance of consistently and continually hearing God's word is paramount and it pervades all of scripture. This is our daily bread. This is our illuminating guide. This is our revealing mirror on the wall. This is our weapon of mass instruction. This is our surgeon's scalpel that exposes and heals This is God's Word. And the writer of Hebrews, it seems, is is urging his readers to listen carefully to what they have heard so that they do not drift away. Now, whenever Scripture talks about hearing God's Word, it means far more than just audibly perceiving it or reading it. The hearing that is referred to here and elsewhere means believing it, obeying it, submitting to it. As someone has, uh, has said, right hearing is, is more a matter of the heart than a function of the ear. We must hear God's word with our hearts and respond in our hearts to it. Christian faithfulness in, in so many ways has got no secret formula. We stay on this course We stay on track. We avoid drifting. We become holy and more like Jesus through God's word. Listen to how Jesus prayed for us. Many of us know this great prayer of Jesus in John 17, but listen to how Jesus prayed for us in this way. Make them holy, Father, by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. We avoid the danger of spiritual drift by reading and hearing and meditating on and obeying Scripture, or as someone else has put it brilliantly, we avoid spiritual drift by dropping the anchor of our souls in the deep waters of the Word of God. Which again, in one sense, takes us back, John, to our Unforced Rhythm series, that daily discipline of engaging with God's Word. That is essential. If we are going to avoid spiritual drift, this book will keep us from drifting. But there's there's another, or probably an even better slant, and, and maybe I've pushed that particular idea in, in that verse a little too far, but there's a better slant, I believe, in this opening verse, and it's this, because whenever the writer refers to paying attention to what they have heard, I've blown that up to hearing God's word gently, but he primarily means, it would seem, given how he started this epistle, given what the entire epistle is about, he primarily means what they have heard about Jesus. Pay careful attention to what you have heard concerning Jesus. This is an epistle that is all about Jesus. This is an epistle that goes to great lengths to Elevate Jesus. This is an epistle already in the first chapter. said, Jesus is greater than the angels. It's an epistle that's going to continue to say that Jesus is greater than any number of things and people. And so paying constant and careful attention to what they have heard and what they have taught, been taught about Jesus is essential in avoiding spiritual drift. Staying focused on Jesus is a safeguard against drift. So the question is, well, what had they heard about Jesus that they were to pay such careful attention to? Well, let's stick with what they'd already heard from this writer right at the beginning of chapter one. And this takes us right back to the first week of this series, if you were here, where we identified seven revealed realities that the writer reveals about Jesus. God's son, What the writer tells us about him that are contained in those first four verses of the first chapter, seven truths that disclose and celebrate his supremacy. Now, I was going to throw this open and see how many people remembered any of the seven things, but I'm just too afraid to do that, okay? Uh, But here are the seven things that they have already heard about Jesus from the writer of this epistle He is inheritor, He is creator. He is sustainer, he is radiator, he is representer, he is purifier, he is ruler, he is inheritor. He has said in the first four verses that Jesus will inherit all things. He has said that through Jesus the entire world was created. He's already told his readers that Jesus holds all things together. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is the one who cleanses us, who purifies us from sin. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in a position of exaltation, a position of honor, a position of authority. This is what you have heard about Jesus. Pay careful attention to this. Because that will save you from drifting. In a subsequent chapter, we all know further on in the book of Hebrews that the writer will tell his readers, fix your eyes on Jesus, who's all of these things, but also he's the author and he is the perfecter of your faith. And it would seem that the writer of this epistle knows that if Jesus is their focal point, if Jesus is their center of attention, if they pay careful attention to Jesus and what they have heard about Jesus, then they will be saved from drift. And so as you read on in Hebrews 2, and in the verses 2, 3, and 4, they continue, it would seem, in this vein, although I'll be honest, the, these verses are tricky. They're kind of hard to, to, to properly explain and fully explain, but I'm going to attempt to do that. Verse 2 begins by referring to the message that was spoken through angels. So this is not so much what they've heard about Jesus, but he's now taking them back to the message that was spoken through angels. And according to the writer here, this message that was spoken through angels was binding. And as we all know, angels delivered many messages on God's behalf, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let's throw it open again. Who can tell me some people who received messages via angels in either the Old or New Testament? Abraham, Abraham yeah. Mary. Mary. Gideon. 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 Yeah. yeah. Jake, yeah. Cornelius. Daniel. Many of them. Many messages received, spoken through angels, and they were, another word for binding in some of your translations, they were reliable, they were. But based on the second half of verse two, have a look at this. Most people think that what is actually being referred to is not so much those messages spoken through angels, but what is actually being referred to here by the writer is the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the law, which as the Bible makes clear in other places was delivered through angels. Let me me just give you a couple of examples just in case you think making this up. But in Acts 7, Stephen, who's about to be martyred for his faith, he says this, he, referring to Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. And then later on, he says this, you who have received the law that was given through angels. And then if you go into Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come a reference to Jesus. And then he says this, the law was given through angels. So you see, the law, the the message that was given through angels, it, it was binding. That was reliable. And if you look at the second half of that verse, when you violated that law, when you violated that message, when you blatantly disobeyed it, you received its just punishment. You were held accountable to it. And so in the law, there was blessings and curses. If you obey blessings, disobey curses. But then the writer moves on and he, and he takes his readers to, and it's a theme that Nathaniel picked up on. And it's the reason he chose the songs he chose. But as the writer moves on, he takes his readers to this great salvation, their great salvation, the salvation that they have found in Jesus, in what they have heard about Jesus, not just the message through Jesus, the message now of Jesus. And he doesn't want them to ignore their great salvation because ignoring it may cause them to drift. And when he says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? What he's really saying here, as I understand is there's still a sense of accountability. As there was with the law in that sense. I mean, you are a privileged people, he's saying. You have received this great salvation. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. And to emphasize how privileged they were and we are, he tells them how their great salvation, their message that they have received, their message of Jesus, how it is greater than, how it is superior to the message that was delivered by angels, the law. And he says it's greater in at least three ways, or it's greater because of three things. First of all, middle of verse three, this message was announced by the Lord. This message was declared not by angels. This message was declared by Jesus himself. Do you know, as, as Simon Peter once confirmed, as he stood before Jesus, he says to Jesus, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Who else can we go to See what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, announced and declared and taught and said is the most authoritative word the world has ever heard. So right at the start of this epistle, second verse, chapter one, what does the writer say? In these last days, God has spoken to us how? Hi. High? Hi. By his son. In the past, he spoke through prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, so the so, most authoritative word we've ever heard. The law was given through angels. The angels mediated the law, so to speak. But now Jesus is our mediator. Jesus not only announced good news, he is the good news. Jesus is the way to the Father. And that has changed and changes everything. Their great salvation was declared. It was announced by Jesus himself. Secondly, this great salvation was confirmed by those who heard it. There were eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses who wrote down what they saw and what they heard. There were people, the apostles, writers of so much of the rest of the New Testament, who were there and who have passed it on. Who have told us the good news about the person and the work and the words of Jesus. So it wasn't just announced by Jesus, but it was confirmed by those who heard Jesus. Makes it so much greater. And thirdly, verse four, God himself has testified to this great salvation, to the truth of the gospel. How? By signs and wonders and various miracles. Now these signs and these wonders and these various miracles, they testify to the identity of Jesus. They didn't exist for their own sake. They pointed beyond themselves, in a sense. They pointed to Jesus. They validated Jesus. They caused people to stop in their tracks and pay attention, not just to what Jesus said, but to what Jesus did. Signs, wonders, various miracles. They spoke volumes about Jesus. But more than that, God has also testified to this great salvation by the giving, the distributing of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, not as ends in themselves, but as we know from Scripture, to build up the body of Christ and to testify that Jesus is Lord. The giving of spiritual gifts makes it really clear that the message of salvation they have received is so much better than the message delivered by angels. And so here's the critical point. You're a privileged people. You have a great salvation. Why do you have a great salvation? It's because of Jesus, a salvation declared by Jesus, God's final word, God's last word. But it's been confirmed by eyewitnesses. It's been testified by God Almighty by signs and wonders and miracles and the giving of gifts. And to drift from that, to drift from that salvation, to drift from Jesus is a total travesty. In fact, it's really serious. It's completely tragic. How can we ignore, how can we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And so, back to the opening phrase, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And the two aspects to what you've heard, you've heard God's Word, and you've heard about Jesus. And so, to sum up, to avoid spiritual drift... Live by God's written word. Listen to it. Meditate on it. Live by it. Submit to it. And look to his living word. To his greatness. To his supremacy. To his great salvation. And if you do that, you won't drift. You won't drift. And so my prayer is that for those people we thought about earlier, who have drifted or who are drifting, may they come back to God's word and may they look to his living word. May they focus on Jesus. May they fix their eyes again on Jesus. The author, the perfecter, their great salvation.